You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Of Acts chapter 10 is where you need to be, the text that we had for our scripture reading. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you of something that I said last week. I mentioned last week that one of the keys to understanding the book of Acts is to understand the purpose for which the book of Acts was written. And really, it's there's two sort of key purposes theologically that Luke is, is under, un, unfolding in the book of Acts. One of them is to show us how it is that the gospel went from Jerusalem to Rome. And in the process, also spread out throughout the whole Roman Empire. The second is to show us how a Jewish church became a Gentile church. Because it went from being largely a Jewish Christians, exclusively Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem, to being a predominantly Gentile church in cities all over the Roman Empire in a little under 30 years. And Luke wants us to see how it is that a Jewish church became a Gentile church. Actually, how it is that a strictly Jewish church became a Jewish Gentile church where this wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles had been broken down once and forever. Now, to you and I, that might not seem like a reason to write a book. It might not seem that significant to you and I because all that we're familiar with is a Jewish Gentile church in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. And we're familiar with worshiping. You worship with a Gentile every week. This church is full of Gentiles. There's more Gentiles here than there are Jews. Some of you may have a little Jewish blood in you, but this is a predominantly Gentile church. Every church in which is not made up of the descendants of Abraham is a predominantly Gentile church because you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And To us, it doesn't strike us as significant that we would be indwelt as Gentiles by the Spirit of God, but in the first century it was entirely different. The Jews hated Gentiles. Now, they hated Samaritans because the Samaritans were half-breeds, apostate, half-Jew, half-Gentile mix. They hated Samaritans, but the hatred that they had for Samaritans paled in comparison to the hatred that the Jew had for a Gentile. That Old Testament ceremonial law which was intended to serve to keep the nation morally pure, religiously pure, and culturally pure in order that a pure nation could reach out to the world and reach a lost world for their God That Old Testament law which was intended to do that only served to give them an excuse to alienate themselves from the lost world. And so a Jew had no contact, no association whatsoever with a Gentile. A Jew would never even think of inviting a Gentile into his home. A Jew would never even think of becoming the guest in the home of a Gentile. Jews, when they left a Gentile nation and came into their land, they would knock the dust off of their feet lest they pollute their holy ground with Gentile dirt. And thus you have that expression, you knock the dust off of your feet. You don't want to bring unholy dirt into the land of Israel. If I was a Gentile coming into the land of Israel, I'd scrape that unholy dirt right into the promised land as I was coming. The Jews were just abhorrent. It was abhorrent to them to do that. A Jew would rather starve to death than eat a meal prepared by Gentile hands and cooking utensils that had been purchased from a Gentile in the marketplace had to be purified before they could be used. School children are cruel, aren't they? 
when I was a kid attending this very school, we used to play this game, not, not a game that I'm, I'm very proud of, this little game where one particular kid in your class or another class was singled out as having cooties. And so anything he touched was unclean. You couldn't touch it, whether it's a door handle or a pencil or a piece of paper. And I'm gathering from the smiles on some of your faces that you played the same silly childhood games that we did. And you couldn't touch whatever it was that he had touched. You avoided touching anything that the, the marked kid had touched. Now, it's a school game to children, but it was no game to the Jews. This was a serious issue. They could not associate or touch anything that was in any way associated with, had been handled by, or was in the existence, in the presence of a Gentile. Because they were the pure people of God. And they would have nothing to do with those unsaved, unsavable Gentile dogs. Such was their mentality. So how did the Gospel become come from being a Jewish Gospel to including Gentiles as well? How did that wall get broken down? Now you might think, it was Saul. It was Paul the Apostle, the, the Apostle to the Gentiles. He must have been the first one to take the Gospel from the Jews and evangelize the Gentile. It wasn't Paul. You might think it was. You know who it was? It was Peter. Peter? He's the Apostle to the Jews. He is as strict, as orthodox, as Jewish as Jewish could get. If there was anybody who had a hatred for Samaritans and for Gentiles, it would be Peter. Raised a Jew in the land of Israel, he was a Jewish Jew. He was so Jewish he was Jewish. That's how Peter was. He would never even think of touching or handling or having anything to do with anything that had been contaminated, touched by, or in the presence of a Gentile. He was that Jewish. And yet, we see the Gospel moving from Jerusalem toward Rome at the hand of Peter, of all people. Now, God's got to do something in the heart of Peter to make that possible. And that's what he does. Peter's going to take the gospel to Cornelius, who is as Gentile as Gentile can be. Peter is as Jewish as Jewish can be. Cornelius is as Gentile as Gentile can be. There is no similarity between the two of them whatsoever. They come from different economic backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different family pedigrees. And yet, Peter's a Jew... Cornelius is a Gentile, and God is going to arrange a meeting between these two men. And God has to do something that is phenomenal to accomplish that. He has to do something in the heart of Cornelius, and He has to do something in the heart of Peter. And that's what Acts chapter 10 is all about. And so we see God supernaturally arranging this meeting. Now really, through the whole book of Acts, we see this slow progression. Sort of baby steps toward Gentile evangelism. Remember the evangelism of the Samaritans? Philip went out and led a Samaritan to the Lord. Acts chapter 8, verse 40 says that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had received the word, what did they do? Rejoice? No, they sent an apostolic delegation. They sent Peter and John down there. What? A Samaritan accepting Christ? Those half-breed, unsavable, apostate Samaritans trusting in our Jewish Messiah? Never. They went down to check it out. Sure enough, the Samaritans received the Spirit. So there's this slow progression by which God is beginning to do something in Peter's life as he witnessed, here's these half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans, and they actually trusted in Christ. Well, now it's another step to go from a half-Jew, half-Gentile. Maybe Peter thought the the Jewish part of the Samaritans got saved, but the Gentile part remained unclean. Now it's a whole other step to a Gentile-Gentile. 
from a Jew-Gentile. So you have this Jew, and you have this Gentile, and God's going to bring them together. And God's been doing something in the heart of Peter for, I think, a couple chapters. And why do I say that? At the end of chapter 9, do you remember verse 43? I said it was significant. He's staying where? In the house of a tanner named Simon. Why is that significant? Because the occupation of a tanner was an unclean occupation. An orthodox, strict Jew would never stay in the home of a tanner because he handles dead animals all the time. That's unclean. Yet it says that Peter was staying many days in the house of Simon the tanner who lived outside of Joppa by the sea. And Peter was there not just overnight and then walking out and ceremonially cleansing himself. Peter stayed many days with Simon. That indicates to me that all of Peter's thinking about this unclean and clean and all the ceremonial and the Jewish isolationism, all those walls are starting to come down for Peter as he's beginning to realize that the work of Christ has a broader scope than just orthodox, strict Jews. So he's staying with an unclean man. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 10. Luke introduces us to a man named Cornelius. Now we're going to see how God prepares Cornelius for this encounter with Peter today, verses 1 through 8. Next week we're going to look at how God prepares Peter for this encounter. Because God has to do a work in both of them. So we see that there are three factors that contributed to Cornelius's really the preparation of Cornelius to meet Peter. The first is his religious devotion. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. There was a certain man at Caesarea. That is a that is the capital city. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> that is the capital city of the Roman province of Judea. It was ruled Rome uh, the province of Judea was ruled over by King Herod. He wanted to sort of kiss up to to Caesar Augustus, and so he named a city after him, Caesarea, or Caesarea, as you might pronounce it. So he named it after Caesar Augustus in order to win favor with Caesar Augustus. And so that became the capital city of the Roman province of Judea. Now, as a Roman capital city, there was stationed in that city a large contingency of soldiers. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. Those 6,000 soldiers were divided into 10 cohorts each consisting of 600 men. Each of those cohorts was commanded by six centurions. Each centurion had command over a 100 men in his cohort. There was an Italian cohort, and one of those six centurions is a man by the name of Cornelius. So in a Roman legion of 6,000 soldiers, you would have 60 of them as centurions. One centurion, his name is Cornelius, which is a common Roman name, it indicates he was a Roman citizen because you could not be a centurion without be, being a Roman citizen. He is as Gentile as Gentile can be. There's no drop of Jewish blood in his veins whatsoever. He is Roman by birth. He is Roman by pedigree. He is Roman by occupation. And if the Jews hated Gentiles, that was one thing. But friends, a Jew hated a Roman Gentile because a Roman Gentile occupied their land. And they were supposed to be free. So they hated Gentiles and they hated Romans. Cornelius is a Roman Gentile. This is not boding well so far, is it? He's from the city of Caesarea. His name is Cornelius. Now, Cornelius seems like he must be a very wealthy man because you look down in verse 7, it says he has some attendants who are with him, some servants. And so he's got some money. He's got some affluence. The fact that he is a centurion made him wealthy because he is... He is a higher up. He's part of the hierarchy of the, of the Roman army. So he has all of these means. 
It wasn't his wealth that bought him his position as a centurion. It was being a centurion that brought him the wealth. And centurions were not made centurions because they were slouches. Cornelius is a disciplined, hardworking, focused, aggressive. I would picture him as being somebody who is not only physically strong because he is a warrior, but he is also somebody who is personally strong. He's a disciplined man. He is a focused man. He's a natural leader. He's the type of person that you look at him in the army and you say, we're going to make that man a centurion because he stands out from among all the other 6,000 men. That was the type of person that Cornelius was. Now, there's something about Cornelius that doesn't meet the eye. It's something that you would probably see if you were to be in his house for an evening meal and to sit down and talk with him and his family. Verse 2, he was a devout man. He was a devout man. And verse 2 says that he is one who feared God with all of his household. That includes his servants, his children, and anybody else that lived with him, be it grandparents or parents or brothers and sisters, anybody who was under his roof. Centurion feared God along with all of his household. That is to say that all of his family and all of his servants are God-fearers as well. He fears God with all of his household, and the text says that he prayed to God continually and he gave alms to the Jewish people. His faith was evidenced in his generosity and his charity as he gave gifts and alms to the Jewish people. And it was evidenced in the fact that Cornelius kept all of the daily hours of prayer. That's why it's significant that at the ninth hour the angel comes to him. Because Cornelius is praying. That was the Jewish hour of prayer. So he's a devout man who who understands a little bit about who God is. He's a man who has rejected all of the polytheism and the idolatry of the Roman culture and the Roman way of life. And he's come to at least an understanding that there is one true God, and it's not any of the Roman gods. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And although he is not a Jew, he goes through the motions and the heart attitude of worshiping what he knows of God. In other words, he's been given a certain amount of light, and Cornelius is living up to that amount of light. He's given a certain amount of understanding of who God is, and he's worshiping that God. And he's worshiping Him devoutly with his whole household. So this is a man whose religion, <clears throat> pardon me again, I brought a frog back from Canada. <clears throat> this is a man whose religion has affected his whole family. The man who leads troops into battle is leading his wife and his children and his servants and all of the people who live under his roof in obedience to the commands of God and in devotion to the God of Israel. This is a man who had led troops. He's now leading his family. He's a natural leader. And everybody in his household shares the same devotion and the same focus that Cornelius does. Now that's unique in a Roman household, but that's the type of man that Cornelius was, leading his whole family in that worship. Now, Cornelius did not lack motivation. Cornelius did not lack sincerity. Cornelius did not lack desire. What Cornelius lacked was a proper understanding of who this God that he worshipped was, and what this God that he worshipped had done for him in the person of Christ. He doesn't understand any of that. All he understands really is what he might know from listening to the Jews and and hearing some of the Jews. And Maybe he had a couple copies of the Old Testament Scriptures. Maybe he had some Jewish friends who had influenced him and brought him sort of toward that goal. He's a devout man. He prays. He's sincere. He, he, He loves the Lord however misguided it is. He leads his family in what he understands to the God of Israel but he is completely without Christ and completely without any saving understanding of who Christ is 
or what Christ has done. But all of that is about to change. Now what I want you to notice, friends, is the type of person that Cornelius is, but it was not enough to be sincere and to be devotion, devote, devout, sorry. It wasn't enough to be sincere and devout. It wasn't enough to, to, to push on in that direction and think that that sincerity would save him. He needed something else. And it was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that verses 1 and 2 describe a lot of people in our country? And a lot of people in your life? They're devout. They're good. They're religious. They pray from time to time. They even are generous and give. They give to the Salvation Army. They give to Toys or Tots. They may even send a church check to a church once in a while. But if devotion and sincerity were enough to save you, Cornelius could be saved. But he can't be saved. Why? Because he needs Christ. His sincerity and his devotion are not enough. I once heard of an interview between a correspondent and Mother Teresa. And and the interviewer asked her, do you try and convert people on the mission field? And her answer was something to this effect. Yes, I do try to convert people on the mission field. I convert Muslims into being better Muslims, Jews into being better Jews, and Hindus into being better Hindus. You see, in her method of thinking, in her mind, and it's the same in so many people's mind, it does not matter what the object of your faith is, it just matters that your faith is sincere. Because all roads lead to God, and as long as your faith is sincere, you just choose whichever faith road you want, and you be devout, and you'll get there. That's Mother Teresa's thinking. What she didn't understand and what she never had was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation and righteousness. That's what she never possessed. And that's what she never communicated to anybody else. And all of her giving, all of her serving, all of her good deeds, all of her praying, all of her sacrifice did not gain her one whit of standing with a holy God. Because you cannot be saved by works. You've got to trust Christ. And all of Cornelius' devotion, all of his sincerity, all of his giving and all of his praying doesn't mean a thing. Because he doesn't have a relationship with Christ. The first factor that related, that was key in the preparation of Cornelius was this religious devotion. Friends, you may be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And you may be sincere and be sincerely lost. Because sincerity does not save you. Christ saves you. And it's not a matter of which road you're on. There's only one road. And that's what Cornelius needed to understand. Now I want you to notice in the text how Cornelius is being drawn by the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God is working on Cornelius' heart and preparing him for his meeting with Christ, or with Peter. When Peter's going to present to him the Gospel. And he is, he's questioning, he's seeking, He's learning, he's, he's expressing his devotion and his desire, and he's looking, he's living up to the light and, and even looking for more light. And you and I might say, well, here is a genuine seeker of the one true God. Well, does any man seek after God? Romans 3. No man seeks after God. That is to say that the natural bent of fallen man is away from God, not toward God or the things of God. The natural bent of fallen man is absolutely at enmity and away from God. So if you run across a person who seems to be seeking, who's interested, who's not hostile to the things of the gospel, willing to learn, willing to listen, friends, that is the work of the Spirit of God. That is not naturally there in fallen man. And so you need to take advantage of it. Jesus said, no man can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the fact that Cornelius is coming to God and seems from human perspective to be seeking is evidence of the fact that the Spirit of God was drawing him and the Spirit of God was working on him. You can look back on your Christian life if you're saved and you can see all of the events of your life and all of the things that unfolded that contributed to your salvation and it was all the work of God. I look back and I see how God put me in a certain neighborhood, gave me certain friends, gave me certain neighbors, gave me certain relatives and how... I was drawn by the books that I read and the things that I learned and the church, this church that I attended and the people that I met here. And I see how God worked all of that and just drew me along to the point where I was presented the gospel and I accepted. And you say, well, Jim, you were seeking God for all of those years. Ah, I was seeking, yeah, but strictly speaking, it was not me. Because Scripture says no man seeks after God, but Scripture does say that Christ draws us to Him. And that's what he's doing in Cornelius' heart. He's longing, he's searching, he's looking, he's ready, but that's not Cornelius' work. That's the work of the Spirit of God. The first thing that helped prepare Cornelius for his meeting with Peter was this religious devotion that the Spirit of God had been working in Cornelius' heart and creating that longing to know more and to understand more. Second thing is the angelic instruction. Look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day... He clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. Now, unlike all of the visions of angels that we hear about today when people say, I bumped into an angel, I saw an angel, I had a vision of an angel, all these people, they approach it so flippantly. Look at Cornelius' response. He's terrified. When people see angels in Scripture, they're terrified. Here is this divine messenger of God, and Cornelius understands that he is He is nothing. He might be a centurion. He might be wealthy. He might have servants. But in the presence of the divine messenger, he's nothing. And I don't know if Cornelius thought that what he saw was God or if Cornelius understood that it was an angel but that the angel spoke for God. Either way, Cornelius says, What is it, Lord? And the angel says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended before God as a memorial. In other words, Cornelius, all of your works have not gone unnoticed. You have not gone unnoticed. The the looking, the searching, the longing of your heart, God sees that and He knows that. Now that would be tremendously comforting to Cornelius. Why? He's never been circumcised, so he has never been fully accepted by the Jewish community. Although he is a Gentile and he's worshiping the Jewish God, or trying to, the best that he knows how, he was never truly as a circum, never truly circumcised and thus never truly accepted by the Jews. Never able to offer a sacrifice in the temple never able to visit the temple, participate in the feasts, or any of the things that would have made him a full-blown Jewish proselyte. Do you think Cornelius understood how the Jews felt about him? you think he'd ever been in a Jewish synagogue? wasn't welcome there. He's a Gentile. His very presence would defile the whole thing. They'd keep him out. And he, he knew how they felt about him. Maybe the longing of his heart was, could a Jewish God ever accept me, a non-Jew? Look at how his people treat me. Why would their God be any different? And so the angel says, it's not unnoticed, Cornelius. Once you know that your prayers and your alms, God sees all of that. But it's still not enough. So he said, dispatch some men to Joppa and go look for a man whose name is Simon. He's also called Peter and he's staying with a man named Simon who is a tanner and he lives by the sea. Now I want you to notice that Cornelius is told by the angel Peter's Hebrew name. Lest Cornelius think that he's sending for a Gentile, He says, I want you to send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. 
Cornelius understands that he's sending for a Jew. And he understands that he's asking, going to ask a Jew to come to his house. Unthinkable that a Jew would step foot in Cornelius' house. How would a Jew, this man named Simon who's also called Peter, how would that Jew ever be willing to step foot in a Gentile home? Think Cornelius wondered that? He doesn't have to worry about it because God's going to take care of it. He's going to have Peter ready to step foot in a Gentile home by the time the whole thing's over with. But Cornelius obeys. That's the heavenly instruction. Send for Simon. He's staying with a man named Simon who's a tanner by the sea. How would they find his house? He's not given any instructions. He's just told that he lives by the sea. He had to live someplace where water was abundant. And since it's an unclean occupation, he lives outside the city of Joppa, not inside the city, because the presence of a tanner in that business inside a Jewish city would have defiled the whole city. So they were out on the outskirts. Out by the sea is a man named uh, Simon a tanner. And all you need to know is he's outside the city, and he's a tanner, and he lives by the sea, and then you can follow your nose, and you'd find the tanner's house. It would be that easy. And so he does that. The third key, not only his religious devotion and the angelic instruction that he gets, but third, in verses 7 and 8, we see his obedient submission. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And he had, when he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Immediately, not even waiting till the next day, immediately Cornelius brings two of his trusted servants in. And he tells them the whole story. Now these men are devout as well because he had led his entire household in this worship. And so he explains to them, I was in prayer at the third hour, which is, or ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the hour of Jewish prayer. And an angel of the Lord appeared to me. And the angel said to me to dispatch two servants and send for this man. This man, whoever he is, you go find him. He lives with a tanner by the sea. He has a message for us. And so he sends off his two servants with a devout soldier, verse seven, with a devout soldier who is somebody under Cornelius' command, obviously. So his faith not only affected his household, it also affected the people that he worked with, his fellow soldiers, as he was able to lead even some of his soldiers in his faith. And he sends them off, the soldier likely for protection, to the city of Joppa. And then Cornelius waits for them to come back. Now you're going to see next, next week why it's a four-day trip there and back is four days. And Cornelius waits with bated breath for this messenger whom the angel told him to send for. Now Cornelius had no way of understanding or no way of knowing if it was going to be worth sending servants to go get this Peter. He had no way of knowing what the message was that this Simon was going to bring back to him. He isn't given any of that. And you may ask the question, why didn't the angel just explain the gospel to him? Why send for Peter? That's four days. Cornelius could have died in those four days and never learned to trust Christ. Why wait for the angel, why wait for Peter to come on a four day trip to Caesarea when the angel could have explained the gospel? There's a reason for that. You find out next week what it is. But he's obedient. And as was Cornelius' custom, he did what he understood God wanted him to do. And so he sends off his two servants and Peter. Now, here's the question. Should you and I expect something like this in our lives? A, con- a vision before a conversion? We shouldn't. You know why? This is a unique situation. This is the first time that a Gentile is going to trust in Christ, a complete Gentile is going to trust in Christ, and he is going to be immersed into the Jewish church in Caesarea. Something unique. 
It's never happened before. We had the Ethiopian eunuch who trusted Christ in chapter 8, but what happened to him? He went on to Ethiopia. He didn't go to any Jewish church in Ethiopia. This is a different situation. Cornelius is a Gentile who now the question is going to be, can God, the Holy Spirit, live inside of an unclean Gentile? Scandal. How can that possibly be? This is completely unique because he's a Gentile. There's a second reason why all the visions and why all the activity of God to get this one man converted, and it's this. God wants to do this in such a way that there can be no doubt in anybody's mind that this is the will of God and what God intends for this. Nobody can say, well, that was just happenstance. It was just circumstantial. It was just chance that caused all of this to happen. No, there's visions, there's angels, there's the Spirit speaking to Peter, divine guidance, sovereign direction, all of that. Because God wants to do it in such a way that nobody can question whether or not the salvation of a Gentile is the work of God. Nobody can question whether or not this Gentile could be saved. And that is also that there would be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all one in Christ Jesus. A unified church. Now we learn two lessons from Cornelius, and the first is this. Although we shouldn't expect visions before conversions, we can expect God to continue to work in the hearts of the lost. We can expect God to continue to prepare people to receive His Son and to trust the Word of Truth when we present it. And you and I should be praying that God would begin to draw individuals in our lives and in our spheres of influence to Himself and then pray that God would prepare us for the moment that we're to share truth with that person. And then pray that God would prepare their hearts in such a way that when it comes time to trust in Christ, they would be ready so that when your path crosses their path and the opportunity is there, you can give the word of truth to them, understanding that it is God who prepares the heart of the individual to receive Christ. Cornelius had to be prepared. So the angel appears and the angel gives him instruction and all of this religious devotion, his whole life is coming to a crisis point. And it's the Spirit of God that's doing that. And the second thing you and I learn is that you can be, you and I, although not converted after a vision, that God was nonetheless involved in preparing us as well. Unlike Peter, I trusted in Christ without seeing a resurrected Christ or an ascending Christ. Unlike the Jews at Pentecost, I trusted in Christ without seeing tongues of fire on anybody's head. Unlike the beggar at the temple, I trusted in Christ without being healed of any physical infirmity. Unlike the Samaritans, I trusted in Christ without the signs and wonders of a Philip. Unlike Saul, I trusted in Christ without seeing a bright light and a heavenly vision and hearing the voice of Christ in my ears and being blinded for a few days. And unlike the the citizens of Lydda, I trusted Christ without seeing somebody, a paralytic, healed in front of me. Unlike the residents at Joppa, I trusted in Christ without seeing someone raised from the dead. And unlike Cornelius, I trusted in Christ without seeing any kind of angelic vision in a prayer. And you were looking at a Gentile. A Gentile Gentile. I would doubt if there is one ounce of Jewish blood running through me. But I was converted without any fanfare, without any visions, without any miracles, without any resurrections, without any proof. Blessed are those who have not seen and what? And believed. That's how I trusted Christ. But friends, although I was converted without all of that, it was nonetheless the work of God that prepared my heart to trust Christ. And I know that. 
If there is anything that brought this dead sinner to spiritual life, it was the work of God. And that's it. And God was just as active in preparing my heart to trust Christ as he was in preparing Cornelius' heart to trust Christ in different ways, but nonetheless active. And if anybody trusts Christ, it is because God has done a work in their heart ahead of time. You and I can believe that, trust that, pray for that, and be thankful for it. That we didn't need a miracle to be saved, but that God was nonetheless working in our hearts. Now, God's prepared Cornelius. But we still have this Jewish Jew who hates Roman Gentiles. And God has to do a work in his heart as well. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you work a work of grace in our hearts and in our lives and that you continue to work that work of grace after we are saved. We thank you that you draw men to yourself because if it were not for the life-giving spirit who draws us to Christ, we would never trust you. We would never turn because, as Jesus said, we lack the capacity and the inclination to believe on him. And we just thank you that our salvation is a work of God, and we thank you that that work of God has been wrought in our lives and brought us to faith in Christ. And we do pray, Father, that you would continue that work of preparing hearts in our spheres of influence, people who don't know you, preparing their hearts to trust in you for salvation. We thank you that you are able to do that, that you have the power to do that, and that you continue to do that. And we ask also that you would prepare us as messengers to be faithful, to be accurate, and to be ready when that time comes, to share truth and to see you work a harvest in the lives of people. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.